Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to mention that there will be a brief postscript at the end of today's podcast on an issue raised in last week's podcast with Mike Munger about shopping malls and department stores. My guest today is Don Boudreau, chair of the Department of Economics at George Mason University and my colleague here. Don blogs with me at CafeHayek.com, and he is the author of the recently published Globalization, the topic of our conversation today. Don, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Good to be here as always. Um, before we begin, I'd like to say just, just a quick word about, about the book. The book is published by Greenwood Press. just came out within the month. Uh, it's priced... It's only available in hardback. It's priced at fifty-five dollars. Fifty-five dollars, Don. Yes. You're such a gouger. Yeah. Well, I did not set the price. Uh, that's the publisher's price, uh, and I, I, you know, I wish it were one tenth, one twentieth of of what it is. I didn't make. I didn't write the book to make money. I suspect even at that price, I'm not going to make uh, much money. I wrote the book to be read, um, and so I just want to tell people that I'm not to blame for the price. I, the Greenwood Press series. It's in a series, and they have uh, some market that they're trying to appeal to. Obviously, it's not the mass market, so the price is not my fault. Uh, just two comments on that, Don. Uh, first of all, I think some readers are under the impression that a $55 book, maybe $30 of that goes to the author. But I can reassure our listeners or assure them, which I mean, or, or upset them. I don't know how you feel about it, but most authors get a very, very small fraction of the uh, retail price of the book because there are many other costs which are not obvious to the uh, uh, to the reader about producing the book and marketing it and selling it and storing it, etc. So the costs are higher than you think, and there's not as much left for us authors as sometimes appears to be the case. But I also want to tell our listeners that even at $55, this book's a tremendous bargain. There's a huge surplus to be had, of course. Well, well thank you. Of course, I, I agree with that. <laughs> Actually, on that topic, let me say, I have a couple of complaints. So, because the book's not very long. It's less than 200 pages. And people say, oh, well, you know, uh, $55 for, for, for a book of under 200 pages, as if, you know, if, if the book were 700 pages, it would be a, 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 bar- a huge bargain. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, I mean, I understand part of that. But one of my goals in writing the book was to be concise and clear uh, to make it an easy, accessible read. And if I had written, which I probably could have done, you know, a a 400-page book, uh, I don't think it would have been as accessible. And I'm reminded, maybe I'm patting myself on the back here too much, I'm reminded of the quip, I I don't remember who said it, that uh, uh, someone said that to to a correspondent, I would have uh, written you a short letter, but I didn't have the time, so you got a long letter instead. And it, it, it takes time, as you know, Russ, it takes effort to summarize things and, and make them as concise as possible. So part of the value of the book, I think, is precisely <laughs> its brevity. But that's for the readers to judge. Okay. Um, the book is an overview of many of the most, most of the most important issues of the day in the globalization debate. And I want to touch on a few of them in this podcast. I want to start with what we might call think of as the the fundamentals of trade, and we've 
talked about some of this in earlier podcasts, but I want to I want to start with this because I think it's so important, which is how trade makes us wealthy. I think there's a tendency to think of trade as people shuffling stuff around. Um, America makes cars and ships them somewhere and in return gets something that we can't make. Or Japan sends us cars and now we send them something that Japan can't make. And there's a tendency then to see trade, especially in goods, because that's what we think about. We often forget about services or assets, which we'll come back to. When we think of trade in goods, we think, well, it's just moving stuff around. And yes, it's better to have the stuff that you like or the stuff you can't make and let someone else make it for you. But that ignores the division of labor and the role of comparative advantage in creating wealth, not just shuffling stuff around, actually increasing the size of the pie, not merely redistributing it. So talk about how that happens and, and the role that trade plays. Well, um, you know, the, the, the two great contributors to the analysis of specialization, two great pioneers were Adam Smith and, and David Ricardo. And Adam Smith, as you know, all good economists should be fond of pointing out, the full title of his 1776 book was an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. He wanted to know what causes the wealth of nations. He didn't ask, I'll point out, what causes poverty. That would have been an absurd question for him. He lived in a world of poverty. Wealth was just getting, uh, uh, what kind of wealth we understand today was was just getting off the ground. So Smith's answer was uh, wealth is created by the division of labor. This is the first chapter of the wealth of nations and specialization, what we call it specialization. And so Smith says, well, why does specialization cause, well, he observed that it does cause wealth. Smith had three answers. One, when people specialize, it reduces the amount of time they spend moving from job to job. I think it's true. I don't think it's that important, but Smith listed it. Secondly, uh, when you specialize in something, you do something repetitively, uh, you gain more skills at doing it. This is something we all observe in our own life. That's clearly true. And so as you become more skillful at doing something, you can, uh, you know, for any amount of time you spend doing it, any amount of effort you put into doing it, you get more out of it. So as people specialize nationwide, worldwide, output increases. Thirdly, Smith said, when people specialize, uh, it's more likely that machines will be invented to substitute for that task. Uh, and when machines are invented to substitute for the task, task the things in mach- the, those things can be produced by the machine, and that releases human labor to produce something that would otherwise be too costly to produce. Uh, I think the latter is by far the most important of the three that Smith identified. My guess is he would agree with that as well. Um, but many people view that as a, a negative about specialization. In the same so way that, yeah. when you have an artisan, you have a craftsman who who does every step of a process of creating a product, a, a piece, an article of clothing, a pair of shoes, say, uh, it's much harder to find a, to create a machine that can make shoes, but it's easier to make a machine that can do parts, different parts of the shoemaking process, and so that makes some of the folks along the specialized assembly line unemployed, and of course that alarms some people. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the, the, in the same way that when we substitute foreign labor for uh, domestic labor, that alarms people. It's all the same issue, really, uh, and what Smith understood. And what every great economist, every good economist understands, but a lot of non-economists don't understand, and frankly I think some economists don't understand, is that uh, the the ultimate resource is human labor. And as we economize on that resource, 
we make ourselves better off. It's good to release labor from the necessity or the desirability of doing task A so that task A can be done by non-human labor, releasing the resource, the labor that once produced it to produce other things. Um, but back to the specialization point. Uh, so those were Adam Smith's three uh, reasons for why specialization increases output. Uh, David Ricardo gave a, a, a different reason, uh, known obviously as the principle of comparative advantage. Uh, Ricardo explains this in Chapter Seven of his 1817 book, Principles, and you know that that's a fundamentally important part of economics. There's this famous story. Uh, Paul Samuelson identified the principle of comparative advantage as the one thing in economics that is both true and non-obvious. I disagree with him, but that's another story. Uh, yeah, Go ahead. yeah, but 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 it, cer- it certainly it's is one of the things. Yeah, and the, there aren't that many. I agree with him there, but I, I don't think it's the only. No, I, I agree with that. But 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 it is it 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 is one of the most non-intuitive uh, parts of basic economics, and a challenge. One challenge, and one challenge that I frankly. Um, uh, set for myself in this book was to explain comparative advantage in a way, in steps, uh, that makes it more intuitive than it might otherwise otherwise be. And the principle of comparative advantage, it's hard to explain verbally without, I'm accustomed to you know drawing things on a board or on a piece of paper, but the principle of comparative advantage says that, look, if, if, if uh, Joe uh, can, can do something at a lower cost than can Sam, uh, then Joe should specialize in doing that thing and let Sam specialize in doing the other thing. And then they trade, even if, and they both gain, even if Joe uh, uh, is capable of producing larger quantities in some amount of time than can Sam. Of both goods. Of both goods, yeah. Um, One example I use, I don't know if it's a, if it's a, I don't know how how, how uh, illustrative it is, but you remember a secretary we had here in the economics department until recently, Kathy Schiffler. She was a really nice woman. She she moved away, and uh, Kathy, great secretary, but Kathy had she had unusually short legs, and uh, uh, you know I have normal sized legs, and I, but I recognize that whenever I needed something delivered quickly across campus. I would almost always send Kathy to do it, right? Now, I can walk faster than Kathy. Because you have the longer legs. I have longer legs. Uh, I'm younger, and I never wear high heels, right? Uh, and, uh, but I would always send Kathy to do it. And even, but so it, 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 when Kathy did it, it got there more slowly. But uh, being department chairman, the tasks that I had to do were generally more... Uh, uh, pressing uh, and, 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 and had a lot of more value added than the ones that Kathy would do. And so I would send Kathy to run things across campus because when she did that, what she sacrificed, the, the value that she sacrificed, the value of the thing that she would otherwise do were she not running across campus to deliver a document, the value of that was less than the value of what I would sacrifice if I ran across campus to deliver the same document, even if I took less time uh, round trip to deliver it. Now, anyway, that's that's one small example of 
comparative advantage. So you put those two together. You have you have people specializing in what they have a comparative advantage in producing, and then you recognize that when they specialize, you have all these other savings uh, or greater efficiencies that Adam Smith identified, and you get this powerful uh, uh, engine, this powerful social engine for the increase in productivity. One thing I like to point out to students is that this is not the principle of comparative advantage in Smith's reasons for why specialization increases up with. This is not uh, a cute theory uh, in, 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 out there searching for application. It, it's look at the world around you and ask how much of what you consume could you have produced? How much of what you consume could uh, uh, have been produced just by the people in your neighborhood or just by the people in your town or just by the people in your state? So just just ask. And the answer you will come up with, certainly in the case of yourself, is nothing. Virtually nothing that we consume could we ourselves have produced. This is the pencil story that we've talked about before in other podcasts. And so the reality of this tremendous output is all around us. It's so familiar to us, it is like the like water to a fish. We just don't reflect upon it. It's just there in our modern society. And that is what has to be explained. And so we have these two theories, or these, these, these two theorists, Smith and Ricardo, who explain that specialization according to the principle of comparative advantage, and then you get the, out, the, the increase in output of, you know, made possible by machines and greater skill. Uh, that is what increases constantly the size of the pie. Let me <clears throat> take a crack at the Smith-Ricardo interface because uh, I've been thinking about it a lot and I think um, we've talked about it a, a paper I think you got me interested initially by James Buchanan on the differences between Smithian Ricardian specialization and Buchanan and Young Yu Buchanan and Young Yu yeah and um, the way I think about it is that you gave really four reasons for the virtue of specialization the efficiency of moving between tasks, the learning by doing, that you get better and better at something you do over and over, the fact that capital, that machinery can enhance productivity by replacing some labor tasks. And the fourth, the Ricardian one, I think about as we're not all equally good at all tasks. So what the Ricardian insight is which I'm now tr going to trivialize it. I'm going to take the Samuelsonian claim about how insightful this is, and I'm going to trivialize it a little bit. But this is the I've been thinking about it lately this way. Since we're all not equally good at all tasks, it matters very, very much how people get allocated to tasks. Mm -hmm. And the most effective way to allocate people to tasks is to have people do what they are uh, most productive at, where most productive doesn't mean, as we just gave your example, well, since you're the best one at going across campus, you should go across campus. The The inside of Ricardo was the role of opportunity cost, right. the role of what's sacrificed, as you right. mentioned. And so what Ricardo was saying is that who should do what depends not on some absolute level of skill, which when you start to think about it is sort of meaningless after a while, because how do you compare what you're best at, which is the way I think most people incorrectly think of comparative advantage. I think, well, you should do what you're best at. Well, it's not what you're best at because you could be 
best at lots of things and but still that, have that, no that's way the deep of insight. That's no the deep way of insight. choosing. What Ricardo understood, not didn't explain it particularly <laughs> clearly or, or explicitly, but what economists with Ricardo have come to understand is that role of what you forego, what your opportunity cost is. And in our daily lives, we understand this because when we change our own oil or paint our own house, some people find that to be productive. But for others of us, what we give up to do that is much greater than the out-of-pocket costs of hiring someone. And so what the wage system does in a market is steer people toward the tasks that they do most effectively and most productively without a central coordinator to sort of interview people and say, well, let's see, what you're, what are you good at? So the Ricardian allocation, which is so extraordinary, because it really does matter who – it's not enough to say, well, we should specialize in the, in, in the pin factory or we should specialize and some people should be doctors and other people should be lawyers and other people should grow food and other people should make clothing. It matters who does those things. So w- w- to me, the Ricardo insight is, is that, that incredible allocation process. But – that third thing, that's the Smith insight about capital, which I don't think enough about, what's extraordinary about that is it gives you growth. See, it's one thing to say, mm-hmm. okay, at a point in time, it's really important who does what because we differ so much and it's really hard to figure out how to get the maximum output from all of our diverse talents. And we would never figure that out in a million years. And the price system, the wages that are assigned to various jobs, along with the non-monetary compensation, does that. But that capital part, the machinery part, is, is, what, is what drives growth. Because the real insight of Ricardo to start with is, well, let's make sure the pie today is as big as possible. And that comes from specialization. But if we're going to grow the pie, if we're going to make the pie bigger over time, something has to change. Now, one way it can change is expanding the access of people to interact with. And that's why trade has such an extraordinary impact on the size of the pie, and that's what we're talking about. But once you've exploited all those gains, productivity has got to drive future growth, and that's going to come from the application of capital and human creativity to find ways to substitute for labor. So I, I, I want to come back to that, the issue that, that, that we took a little digression on. I want, to come, I want to digress again because you have an incredible insight into this. When we see people who are put out of work by either trade or the application of machinery to, to, the, to the productive process, both of which do the two things, exactly the same things. One, it makes us wealthier overall because it means we get more out of our scarce resources. The second thing is it's, it harms a particular group of people for a while who are put out of work. And I often, until I met you, would say, well, yeah, trade hurts some people. And you criticize that, and I think correctly, and I've, I've tried to get that a more nuanced version. Why do you argue that it would seem, for example, that steel workers are hurt by Brazilian steel coming in or Russian steel coming in? American steel workers are hurt by that, or American steel workers are hurt when some new productive process comes in. But you argue that that's the wrong language. Why? It depends upon – what matters is your, your time perspective, There's no question that when people lose jobs, it hurts them. They they are hurt by that, and it's not an abusive language to say uh, that when the steel worker loses a job, for whatever reason, because of better technology, foreign trade, the demand for steel falls, whatever the reason, 
that that steel worker is hurt. By the way, the the shareholders of the steel firm are hurt as well. But we have to it, it, to make the statement trade hurts some people and to say, oh, so in this case, steel workers lost their jobs because of trade. And we should protect them from that, if we because otherwise it's cruel. Well, that's the implication. And of why? That. Why should is all this extra wealth that right. we're claiming comes from trade? I mean, is that worth it for impoverishing steel workers? We need to take a longer term perspective. It's almost surely the case that the jobs that the steel worker lost would not have existed were it not for trade to begin with. Uh, uh, and so if, if that's the case, and I think we can make a claim that we, could, we can show that it is, if that's the case, then does trade hurt the steel worker or help the steel worker? If trade is responsible for the job to begin with, then it's it's impossible to make a general. It, it's wrong to make the general statement. Trade hurts the steel worker. An analogy I used in a post that I did at Cafe Hayek a few years ago was it was it was, it was a little bit uh, whimsical, but I, I like it. Was was love? Uh, if if uh, a man in, in my blog post, a, a, a man loses his wife. Right? The wife walks out on him for another man. Right? And then you say, well, this guy's a loser at love. Well, it, it, in one sense. He sure is. He, he doesn't want to lose his wife, loves his wife. She's leaving him for another man. He's hurt. Uh, but on the, on the other hand, it's, we, let's take a longer time perspective. It's probably the case that he won the wife to begin with uh, from some other man because of love and romantic Competition attraction. And, yeah. He himself, let's face it, is the product of uh, love, <laughs> love and, yeah. and romantic attachment. So from a broader perspective... Uh, do we say that? Well, you know, love has good sides and bad sides. We can. What what is true in any dynamic growing economy is change. Change means that, and it, and change inherently has unanticipated, unexpected surprises. It's part of what change means, and so people will encounter these unexpected surprises. Some of them will be, many of them will be good. Some of them will be bad. And I don't know if I've pointed this out here before in a podcast, but, you know, it's possible. If you don't like that, you can shield yourself from it. Just go buy a couple of acres of land somewhere in, in Montana or the Yukon or Nebraska, probably in New England, Georgia. You can find places with Europe, North America, wherever you are. And uh, live uh, without much trade. Live in a subsistence life. And you will then not have to, if you just have you and your family and you're growing your own food, making your own houses, you know, supplying your own fuel, you won't have to, you, you can truly forget about what's happening to world currency values, what's happening to trade flows, what the money supply is doing. You can forget all about that. Uh, and you can have a very secure life in one dimension of, like you say, not much change. You're not going to be buffeted by these Economic forces. That, well, yeah, oh, you won't be you won't be buffeted by by economic change. Although, uh, think about it. In some sense, you know, you you still can't escape change because if if the weather patterns are becoming change, let's say you know, it's, it's rainy for a few years and then you have a drought, maybe you know maybe you'll die. Yeah. Uh, but you won't be put. You won't be undone by the economic decisions made by other people. And in that way, you can protect yourself from economic change. But you'll be dirt poor. And so what people have and maybe, done... And maybe dead. Uh, and probably maybe dead. Well, almost surely dead, actually, after a while. 
uh, what people do, and I, I think this is a fair description of what we've done. What we have done is make, we make this bargain. It's an overtime, what Jim Buchanan would call a constitutional bargain. We agree to become we agree to become part of this worldwide exchange nexus. What we get in return is access to a level of material prosperity that would be utterly impossible if we lived uh, in some different way, in some pre-industrial, non-commercial way. We would not be as wealthy as you are. The, the level of material wealth of the employed subsistence farmer uh, would be much lower than the level of material wealth of the unemployed steel worker today in, in, in modern America. So that's what we get for this. And what we give up in exchange, one of the things we give up in exchange, is uh, the, is, the uh, is our willingness to play by the rules of the exchange game. And that is, there's consumer sovereignty and entrepreneurial dynamism. And we recognize that those are, the, those are critical, those two things, along with some other things, are critical to driving this economic growth and making this material prosperity. But we recognize that, that they will upend, at, at any one time, uh, particular economic activities, rendering those activities, rendering those jobs no longer uh, 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 viable for, for you, your family, your cousins, your father, perhaps. And so we, by playing by the rules, mean we agree to adjust ourselves to those changes in exchange for the access to the huge amount of wealth. If now, in any one case, and this is what makes the, it, it, this a difficult policy. In any one case, because our world is so big and the trading patterns are so extensive and, and, and deep, in any one case, you can defect from the game. You can just say, look. I still want to have access to the wealth, but I don't want to have to adjust my activities to it. And that seems like a noble thing, and politicians, of course, play up to that. John Edwards, that's what John Edwards plays up to. I will fight for you steel workers and you, you know, textile workers. Um, but is He's that not really? the only one. No, I know. I'm just picking him, just picking him up. <laughs> Shouldn't, uh, because he's uh, got I too agree. much confidence. Right. Even Hillary Clinton wants to take a time out on trade deals. Uh Oh, most of the Republicans are also very skeptical about trade right now, which is because of these it's, it's, targeted. It's disgusting. I mean, claims. the the, the but we'll put that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. Um, and but if if everyone if everyone did that, if everyone said, okay, look, my job will be protected, but I want everybody else to to play by the rules that are necessary to generate a growing, prosperous society. If everyone did that, there would be no growing, prosperous society. We would return very quickly to a state of dire, miserable poverty. Right? And so, you know, when Bill Clinton back in the early 90s talked about Americans playing by the rules, uh, uh, I don't think this is what he had in mind, but I think people should play by the rules. And part of playing by the rules is when consumers change their spending patterns of their own free will, of their own accord, because other entrepreneurs, whether they be domestic or foreign, offer them better deals. Playing by the rules mean you do not stop those consumers from taking those deals because that's part of what's necessary to create this growing, prosperous society that we enjoy. Yeah, and I it's that we all enjoy. Yeah, you know, if if you have a uh, a burning desire that you and your children should be blacksmiths, the world's a little unfair if you think you're entitled to that because really the only place you can do that now 
is in a colonial Williamsburg type <clears throat> environment where there's just not much demand for that service other than this uh, charming recreation of miserable colonial life. I actually, I, I suspect that uh, uh, there is some demand for those services in uh, some places of uh, you know rural Eastern Europe still. Oh yeah, no, no, for sure. And I, my guess is that you know if you're willing to learn the language, the Eastern Europeans will have you there <laughs> to blacksmith. Uh, but that might. But I think where you're going is that that desire is really not that burning. Well, no, not just that. I just I think the I think our emotions and our pocketbook get tied up in these issues, and I don't think we should. I don't. I know that neither one of us wants to um, minimize the financial challenges that someone goes through when consumers or entrepreneurs take choice make choices that that affect your standard of living. Uh, but I think the insight here, which, I, which is to me terribly profound, is that what sustains our longevity, our health, the quality of life, and the toys we enjoy, uh, which are all, all of those are, are things that give human satisfaction and pleasure, is this nexus of exchange, this opportunity to interact with people by specializing in various tasks and then exchanging with them. And as you point out quite eloquently in the book and and have pointed out elsewhere, it has nothing to do with national borders. And I, I'd like – let's talk about that because as you mentioned a minute ago, uh, and I don't know whether – I think I got this example from you. If, if low-carb dieting becomes the rage, uh, the, the baker can take a hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the candy maker takes a hit. And some candy makers, of course, figure out a way to make low-carb candy. But if you haven't figured that out, you, you get hit. You get mm-hmm. hurt, and your family is going to struggle relative to other families and relative to your past. And that has nothing to do with international trade. It has to do with domestic trade. If someone figures out a way to make your job less productive because there's a way of doing it cheaper with a machine, making your labor less productive because a machine can do it more cheaply, you are going to have you're going to have a hard time. So it has nothing to do that challenge of change has, as you argue in the book, has nothing to do with trade. Trade just another example of it. And most of us, almost all of us, willingly make that trade that you talk about, accept those rules of the game by saying, you know, I understand that there are times that we're going to be hurt, but um, it's worth it because. By allowing everyone else to specialize, we get the benefits. Yes. And, of course, we're both tenured professors of economics, and some people say, well, it's easy for us to make this claim. We have tenure. Um, we don't face these economic challenges that other people face. How do you, how do you answer that? Oh, this, of course, as you know, Russ, this happens a lot. <laughs> we have lots of comments on Cafe Hayek uh, from various people who say, oh, <laughs> well, these guys are tenured professors of economics, so they, we, we can't take what they say seriously. I mean, obviously, the first correct answer is an idea, a thought, should be judged on its, on its own terms, on its merits, not by the identity of the person making the thought. On the other hand, we all recognize that, uh, people, that, that arguments are made by human beings. Human beings have interests and perspectives and context, and no doubt the, someone's uh, uh, personal situation influences the way he or she looks, at, mean, the wor- looks at the world. I, 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 so the second thing I can say is uh, I believed in free trade. I understood the virtues of free trade uh, no less strongly than I do now, and advocated them no less strongly than I do now, long before I was a tenured professor. Uh, and uh, uh, and so the, I didn't come to this view 
when, when I got tenure. Right? And I'm sure the same is... It is. Okay. Uh, but I think another way to respond, and I've done this as well, is, okay, let's play this game. Let's say that uh, you, 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 anyone who has any stake in the matter, personal stake in the matter, is not really allowed to comment, or their comments should be dismissed. Then I say, okay, then uh, untenured auto workers and steel workers and textile workers and farmers, and they are untenured, they have no right to comment on trade because, after all, uh, trade might upend their jobs. And so clearly they're opposed to trade only because they might lose their job. Personal stake. Right. right now. now, I don't regard that as a uh, – there are a lot of arguments in, uh, against protectionism that I accept. I do not regard that as an ar a valid <laughs> argument against protectionism. Uh, I understand that steel workers, for example, will, might make an argument in favor of protectionism. I don't regard the steel workers' uh, position as an untenured worker whose job might be at stake because of increased international trade to be uh, in any way uh, relevant to the discussion. You look at the arguments uh, about the matter. Uh, and it, and. Another thing to say, there are a lot more things to say, but I don't, I don't want to take up the whole podcast with it. It's not true that that tenured professors face no competition. First of all, we, we, we are tenured, and it is more difficult for a tenured professor to lose his job than, say, for a, a, maybe a steel worker. Uh, but uh, number one, our, our, we're not guaranteed salaries, right? So our salaries, you know, might not go up. And we face comp the, the, the talk about increased competition. The, the 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 web and connect worldwide connectivity are improving daily. You know, we, look what we're doing right now with this podcast. Uh, ultimately, teaching is about imparting knowledge to others. Uh, does anyone really think that the only way or the best way to impart knowledge is to stand physically in front of a group of students sitting in desks and talking at them? Uh, I don't think so. I think that's one way, but there are lots of other ways. And as these other ways become uh, uh, technically more sophisticated as they are doing daily, then the competition that we face is there. And so m maybe I won't lose my job, but maybe because of this competition, George Mason won't feel the need to um, you know, increase my salary by as much as it otherwise would work not for this competition. Or the campus might get closed down or it might drop That's its true. Department of Economics, which, is, which happens. And In which case tenure, we're not tenured. <laughs> the people lose their jobs. It, it can happen, but it's a long shot. The other point worth mentioning, of course, is that we are in competition with foreign faculty in all kinds of ways. One, one is they come here and compete and, and affect our salaries. The second, and I will say for the record, I am in favor too, of completely yeah. open borders to that, to foreign uh, professors who would compete with right. me. And I was I favored that before I was tenured. Yeah, I think, and that's a great thing. And also, of course, American universities are in competition with foreign universities. Our ability to attract students to come here from overseas is affected by competition from foreign universities. Well, enough enough about our our tough uh, competitive life here in the in the uh, halls of of academia, but. Oh, I should say also for the record, I, 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 I am opposed to tenure. I would get rid of the system. <laughs> that's a, that's yeah. a, another interesting uh, uh, point. Um, let's go back to this issue of national borders, though, because, again, it's a, it's a wonderful thing in the book. You discount those. You talk about how misleading it is to talk about trade from a national perspective. That's very different than what we hear on the news. We, saw, we hear things about America's winning the economic war or China's threatening us economically, where us refers to Americans, and yet you emphasize the importance of looking at individuals and uh, discounting national borders. One of the greatest uh, men I know 
uh, a great scholar and great human being is, is Manuel Ayao in Guatemala, founder of University Francisco Marroquin there. And he gives this wonderful example. He said, look, if in 1988 it was perfectly fine for Vaclav in Prague. Havel. Just Vaclav, some oh, guy named oh, Vaclav <laughs> in, in Prague in 1988 to trade with Vladimir in, um, uh, what, is, what is it, capital of uh, Bratislava, maybe? I don't know. To trade it's with nice. Vladimir uh, uh, in the eastern part of Czechoslovakia, right? Uh, and no one thought anything of it. Is it any less uh, valuable or any less worthwhile or any less important uh, today, uh, now that Czechoslovakia is split in two, you have the Czech Republic in the west and you have uh, Slovakia in the east, for the same Vaclav to trade with the same Vladimir today? They're the same people trading. They may be trading the same things, but now they're two different countries, right? Well, could, they could have a deficit. They could have a deficit. They could be contributing to the deficit. Yeah. Um, uh, what what is the relevant? I don't. Well, I mean, I guess I can I, 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 I understand at one level, but the more you think about these issues, uh, you, 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 the more you're compelled to ask, what is the economic relevance of political borders? The economic relevance is zero, zero. Uh, there, there may be there may be relevance in, in other dimensions. There's clearly yeah, we'll a political relevance. Yeah. There may be relevance for national defense issues, but I think even those are overblown, as I discuss in the book. But if I want to trade with you, we, we both would be better off by trade. What difference does it make if there's, an, if there's an imaginary line drawn by some cartographer at the behest of, uh, of uh, uh, politicians running between us or not? It makes no difference. If you and I gain from trade, you and I gain from trade. And we, you know, we know from the logic of, uh, of Adam Smith and David Ricardo that the greater this specialization, the wealthier we all become. There is no, as far as I can tell, there is no, in fact, I, not as far as I can tell, there is no, nothing about either of these theories or any other theory of international trade that says that the, the limits of the ability of increasing specialization to improve the wealth, the material welfare of people, somehow stop at national borders. Uh, yeah, I wish we could trade with people on Mars, but we don't seem to have any. Yeah, one, you know, one contact re- with them. One reason why one reason why the United States is is so prosperous. This is, this is a point I think worth pointing out. When I when I teach international trade. Uh, Sometimes my students will say, "Well, yes, all good in theory, but you know, there hasn't been much real free trade in history." And it's true; governments are notoriously prone to be to protect. A couple of responses, several responses. To that one is it's not exactly true. Uh, Hong Kong uh, uh, has largely, under the British British governance, largely practiced. Free trade. There are no natural resources at all. The only thing that Hong Kong has is a, is a deep water harbor, and so Hong Kong has practiced free trade. It's become one of the wealthiest places in the world, uh, and so that that's that there is fairly strong evidence in favor of the benefits of free trade. The United States itself, although uh, it has had uh, too much protection of its national borders from trade over time, the United States itself is this gigantic free trade zone. Part of the reason for the 1787 Constitution, uh, Constitutional Convention 
was to create, although language wasn't used then, but was to create a free trade zone so that Virginia and Connecticut and, 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 and New Hampshire and the others, uh, 13, original 13 states, didn't have their own independent commercial policies. And so we have this huge free trade zone. Well, America is, because we're such a large nation, transcontinental, uh, even if we did protect our borders from all trade, we would still be fairly wealthy, I believe. Now, we wouldn't be as wealthy as we are today, but we wouldn't be as poor as we would be if, say, if uh, Virginia uh, uh, didn't trade, Virginians didn't trade outside of the boundaries of the state of Virginia. Uh, have a lot more auto jobs, though. Just be no one could afford the cars. But. <laughs> we would, and uh, and so so one of the challenges that one of, well, I think one of the gravest challenges, and I don't I don't think it's meetable by the proponents by proponents of protectionism, is to explain wh- why is it that uh, uh, a division of labor and specialization within national boundaries, whether you're talking about the United States or Belgium or any country of intermediate size. Why is it those national boundaries, what is it about those national boundaries that give trade and specialization somehow it's optimum? Why is the optimum amount of specialization in trade, why does it happen to occur within certain geographic boundaries? Is is Germany today are Germans better off today because they, they, they now trade over a much larger area than they traded, say, before 1989 uh, when, when they were two separate countries? Or, 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 or are they wealthier today than they were before, what was it, 1871, when you had German unification? You had all those little German principalities. There's just nothing about political borders that's economically relevant. Well, let me use the intuition. I think that the People who are worried about trade exploit are worried about protecting themselves and uh, worrying us about some of these effects. I think part of the confusion is over money. And Adam Smith's insight – correct me if I'm wrong because you know more, a lot more about Smith than I do. But Smith and the Wealth of Nations, one of his contributions was pointing out that wealth doesn't come from money or gold or pieces of paper. It comes from – Productivity. It comes from what we can create. And I think what the reason that people worry about national borders is they have a misunderstanding about the role of money. So I want to ease us into a new topic, which is the trade deficit, which I know you're passionate about, as am I, and use that as an example of the unimportance of national borders, even though people do worry a lot about it. So as you point out, if somebody in Maine uh, trades with somebody in Massachusetts, we don't worry at all. We let that trade freely take place. It's constitutionally protected that it takes place freely. But I think if you ask people, should people in Maine be worried that their money is leaving Maine and going into Massachusetts, they'd say, well, no, of course not, because the person in Massachusetts is an American like me, and that they're on our side, and somehow it stays in the country. But when I buy something from a Canadian or a Mexican, the money leaves the country, and therefore we're poorer. So I think part of the misunderstanding is has to do with thinking that our wealth is how much money we have, which at a personal level can be true, often is true, but certainly not true at the national level. Even at the personal level, uh, you, you certainly measure your you measure your wealth by money. But uh, it's just a philosophical question: Would you is is a miser is a wealthy is a, is a miser with lots of money wealthy? That person has the opportunity 
to become wealthy, but if that person to, never... Or to enjoy things. To enjoy yeah. things. But if that person never spends the money, that person uh, is very poor. You know, made poor by his or her own peculiar preferences, mis- mistaking green pieces of paper with monochrome pictures of dead statesmen on them, to use an American example. Um, but that misconception, you're right, that misconception is rampant. It's it's... It's got flaws at so many different levels. I mean, the 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 most fundamental, the, 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 well, the easiest of the flaws to, I think, um, disabuse people of, is the idea that when money leaves the country, it's somehow gone forever. You know, well, why do Canadians, to use your example, why do Canadians accept American dollars? Uh, well, presumably they want to. They want those dollars because they want to buy things that are priced in American dollars, either American goods, American services, or American assets. And uh, so I, I assume that when, and I think it's a good assumption, that when foreigners accept American dollars in exchange for the exports that they sell to Americans, the, 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 the money may leave the physical boundaries of the United States for a while, but it eventually comes back as demand, foreign demand for American goods, services, or assets. It doesn't permanently go out. By the way, of course, as you know, it would be good if it would be good for Americans if it permanently permanently went out. Yeah, we want to. I want to come back yeah. to that cause yeah, if we look, can, because yeah, that's such but, an important uh, side note. But but as you point out, that's unlikely. It, it comes back either in the demand for goods or, ser- or goods, goods, services, services or, or assets. assets. But I think what most people worry about, and I think you do a nice job in the book disabusing people of this notion. They say, well. We run a trade deficit with the rest of the world. So that means that we buy more from foreigners than they buy from us. So not all the money comes back. Yeah. And, and, and that's the worry. Why is that worry well, wrong? Well, that's, that's, that's just a fundamental – that reflects fundamental ignorance of what the trade deficit is. The trade deficit – I mean, it has – it's kind of a loosey-goosey term. It's, it itself is not really a technical term. Uh, the best People disc- use it often to mean yeah. the merchandise trade deficit. Uh, let, let, let's take let's take the more sophisticated uh, uh, commentators when they mean the current account deficit. Okay, so what's in the current account deficit? Fundamentally, there are a few small things in it, but fundamentally, the current account deficit measures trade in goods and services. Unlike the merchandise trade deficit, which measures just trade in merchandise, things you can touch. Right? Uh, and so, uh, uh, where say automobiles and lumber uh, are measured or are measured both in the merchandise trade account and in the current account. Uh, uh, education services, when we have a foreigner come to George Mason, a student, for example, um, that thing that we sell is not measured in the merchandise account, but it is measured in the current account. Well, clearly, um, uh, be- because ser- especially because services are such a, such a large part of the American economy, about 90% of the American economy, much of what foreigners buy from us will be services as well, but 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 but, but it, it, the more the more fundamental point here is that uh, the even with services we run a deficit in the current account in the United States and have for a long time. Yeah, even with services we run a, we run a, a a current account deficit. We run a current account deficit. I always forget whether it was 1976 and 1977 as the first first years from the. That then till now that we're let's just run, say for about thirty years for about we've run thirty years we're a current, every year a current a current account, account deficit. deficit right 
but all that means is the mo the money that doesn't come back to America as demand for goods and or services is coming back, but it's coming back as demand for assets. It's still coming back. It's just coming back as demand for assets. It's coming back. It's measured in another account called the capital account. Which doesn't get any press. It doesn't <laughs> get any press. And, 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 and the way these accounts are set up, the way the elements in those accounts are defined, uh, it's, it's, and, and there are technical reasons for this, but now in our world of flexible exchange rates, the capital account and the current account, when you add them up, by definition now, always equals zero. And so if America in 2007 has a current account deficit of, I don't know, $982.7 billion, then by definition it has a capital account surplus of $982.7 billion. The two add up. And so as Herbert Stein says in a really nice essay he has in the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics called, uh, called Balance, of, uh, Balance of Payments or Balance of Trade, I forget, uh, he says, he says yeah, th there is no deficit. When you, when, you, when you look at both accounts, trade's always balanced. Okay. Now, uh, so, so the money's coming back, but it's coming back, the, 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 the money that doesn't come back in the current account comes back in the capital account. It comes back as demand for assets. Well, it too is employing Americans, if you want to think in those terms. It's, uh, one way to think of it is, by coming back to the United States, uh, you have, we have more capital here, which means all other things equal, interest rates are lower than they would otherwise be, which means that some investments that would otherwise be too uh, costly for entrepreneurs and businesses to undertake now become profitable to undertake. And so, you know, new retail outlets are opened, uh, factories are expanded, more R&D takes place, more worker training takes place, all the things that investment does takes place. These things create jobs they improve worker productivity so they the create higher paying jobs than they otherwise would be right but, but, but let's get back to the, the the fundamental confusion the trade deficit or the current account deficit does not mean that some amount of money the amount of the deficit is somehow leaving the country and never coming back it's coming back this is coming back in the capital account but, it, but as you point out in the book it comes back to the current holders of american assets who use that money to buy stuff with just like it, they would if it was bought by foreigners who are who are tra who would who would buy our stuff, so it's irrelevant who yeah. who uh, is buying those assets, except for the fact, which is important, that the sellers of the assets very much want who are American, very much want foreigners to be able to bid on them yeah. and and create a price and puts them in the hands of the people who can use them most most effectively. Two important points here I want to emphasize. One is the one you you, you just mentioned. Ask you to do, do the following mental experiment. Suppose you have. Uh, stock in uh, uh, some company, Microsoft, 3M, you name the company. Uh, would you feel uh, good if uh, a law were passed saying that only people in your hometown are allowed to bid on your stock if you want to sell it? Right. It, it may be, it may be that a fellow, uh, you know, the guy down the street may be the person in the world who's willing to pay the highest amount for your stock when you want to sell it. But it's unlikely, unlikely yeah. right? Surely you want as the market for your assets to be as large as possible. So from a pure self-interest standpoint, uh, holders of assets want the pool of potential bidders for those assets to be as large as possible. Why, why, why restrict the people who can bid on our assets uh, to only people who live, who, who, who hold U.S. passports? That's dumb. Uh, um, 
uh, now from a somewhat more uh, fundamental economic perspective, <coughs> uh, you know, assets are not just they're not just idly held. I mean, some of them are. We get a lot of portfolio investment, as it's called, uh, but much investment, even investment in America by foreigners, is is foreign direct investment, where where foreigners take active control over the use of assets. Now, a lot of Americans will say, oh, this, well, this is bad because, you know, we have foreigners controlling our assets. Well, um, uh, I have a lot of problem with our assets. Uh, my assets are ones I own. Uh, I don't regard... It's a meaningful... It's a, that's a meaningful concept. Our assets is not... Is what meaningful. I own. It's not so much... It's not... If I don't own an asset that's in, in Kansas, for example, I'm not sure why it's my asset or why I'm sharing in it, why the, why the plural possessive first person is relevant here um, but but p- put that issue aside uh, the the assets are more productive and workers who work with those assets are more productive the the better are the ideas for how to deploy those assets the more creative the ideas about how to deploy those assets uh, if the most creative person if the most creative idea for how to use say uh, uh, a, 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 a capital piece of capital machinery in Nebraska or an oil well off the coast of Texas uh, happens to be someone in Romania or in, or in China or in Canada, uh, we sacrifice that creativity and hence sacrifice the enhanced productivity that creativity brings by restricting the ability of foreigners to invest in those assets. But I want to make another point about the trade deficit that's, that's often, that, that causes a lot of confusion, as you know. And that's the notion that the trade deficit or the current account deficit is a measure of America's indebtedness. Right? It's simply not true. The trade deficit is not synonymous with with debt. Now, let's be precise. Right? You can define the trade deficit, the current account deficit, as as being debt. But in any it's not the way we use the word in everyday language. No, and I like the example I like I, I no longer have as you know I, I now have an apple. But the computer I had before I got my Apple last year was a Sony Vio. I had it for a couple of years. I paid two thousand dollars cash for the Sony Vio. So I gave I effectively gave two thousand dollars to Mr. Sony. He gave me a computer. There was no debt created in that transaction. Now I don't know what Mr. Sony did with the two thousand dollars, but let's say Mr. Sony took those two thousand dollars and just stuffed them stuffed them into his sock drawer. Um, well. If he did that, that $2,000 would have increased America's trade deficit uh, by $2,000 because in this case, this was I imported $2,000 worth of stuff from Japan and uh, the $2,000 that I spent on what I imported was not spent by the Japanese in return. It was stuck in a sock drawer somewhere in Tokyo or Kyoto or wherever Sony's located. Now, uh, but where's the, there's no debt. No one owes anyone anything. It's it's not debt at all. Now it can be converted into debt if Mr. Sony had then takes a two thousand dollars and lends it to Uncle Sam or lends it to me as consumer credit or lends it to General Motors uh, uh, buying commercial paper. Then it becomes debt, but it doesn't have to. If Mr. Sony takes a two thousand dollars and buys stock in General Motors, the money comes back here. Uh, but Mr. Sony now has equity in GM. There's no debt. No one owes Mr. Sony. Anything, Mr. Sony can't call in a, 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 a loan from anyone. So it is simply mistaken uh, to c- count the U.S. current account deficit as American debt. Part of it is transformed into debt 
but it is not the same thing as debt. But it's important to add that it's a, the part that is transformed is due to two causes, which you just mentioned. One is borrowing by Uncle Sam, which is that we have a budget deficit at the federal level that is financed by borrowing by the U.S. federal government. And that's a deficit I don't like. Right. Well, I'm, I'm not as worried about that, but it's a separate issue. But the, but the, the U.S. federal government borrows money. It borrows money from Americans by selling them bonds, but it also – treasury notes – but it also borrows money in the open market from, from foreigners. So that's, quote, real debt. Of course, the existence of that debt has nothing to do with the trade deficit. It has to do with the fact that the U.S. government, for political reasons, has decided not to finance all of its current level of spending out of current taxes. So if that worries you, the government should just raise taxes or lower spending. That in itself has nothing to do with the, with the trade deficit. But the second component of the debt, which which is, I think, also a little bit misleading, is the example you gave with General Motors. If General Motors builds a factory and chooses to finance that factory out of uh, bonds rather than equity, and some of those bonds are bought by foreigners, that is debt. Mm-hmm. But it's not debt the way people use it in everyday language of living beyond your means or borrowing to mortgage your future and jeopardizing your future. It's basically saying, I want to create a productive asset. I may not turn out to be productive, but in my best guess, Mm -hmm. this is a productive asset. I have two ways of financing it, and I'm going to let foreigners share in the productivity of that asset. When I do it via debt, the amount they share is fixed, the amount they share. When I do it versus equity, they take more risk. Mm -hmm. That's the only difference. But both of those components, corporate debt or government, federal government debt, are a small part of the capital account surplus that mirrors the current account deficit that we've been talking about. That's right. And, and, and just to emphasize the point about debt, de- debt itself is not necessarily bad. Debt used to – most of us would regard if, – if, 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 if I borrow money against my house and then throw a gigantic party, <laughs> right, all right, then I'm, I'm made poorer. Uh, but there are – I'm not an expert in the theory of finance, and you kind of alluded to – but but we all know there are good, solid, financially sound reasons, even for very solvent liquid companies, to finance part of their operations with debt. And it it, it it's it's there's nothing wrong with that. And finally, when to the extent that foreigners, to the extent that General Motors wants to fund its new factory with debt, or frankly, to the extent that Uncle Sam wants to fund whatever uh, programs it has by floating debt. The greater the willingness of foreigners to, 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 to lend that money, the better off Americans are. Because if, if foreigners were less willing, interest rates would be higher, and so private investment in the economy would be lower, private productivity would be lower. And taxpayers would have to pay more in the ta- future to finance that Taxpayers would have to pay more. In, right. So just to summarize this. As you point out, the current account deficit is the capital account surplus. They're the same thing. That's right. Just as we talk about a current account deficit, we could equally as well say, great news this month. For yet another another quarter, another month, or another year, America has managed to attract more investment and more foreign capital than Americans have, have invested or spent abroad. It's another great year for the American economy. Instead, what we hear is, Oh, it's another bad year for the American economy. We ran a trade deficit again. We, we bought more from foreigners than they bought from us. Now, when we do that year in, year out, we are given the privilege 
of consuming year in, year out more than we produce. That's what a trade deficit is. The only, the, the only way you can do that systematically year in, year out is to attract capital. Mm-hmm. And we have, because America is a great place to invest relative to the rest of the world, we're given that wonderful opportunity. Now, I think what people think of when they hear about the trade deficit is we're living beyond our means. That somehow, because we're consuming more than we – it's another one of these pernicious aspects of a, of a national border. Because we as a nation are consuming more than we produce – which is what a trade deficit is, mm-hmm. that oh, we're living beyond our means. It's really the, a different story is the right story, although the government's living beyond its means. That's, right. Again, that's a separate problem, separate issue. But what it's really saying is America is such a productive place that people are willing to give us money in return for a future promise of a piece of that productivity. Yes. And we're both going to be better off. Americans, through that productivity as you talk about and the investment, and through the goods we get to consume, and foreigners because we provide an opportunity for them to have an enhanced future. John Macon, at the, uh, I think he's at the American Enterprise Institute, he's got some good insights uh, on this issue. I don't recall now the, the titles of his, of his essays, but I encourage listeners if they're interested. We'll find him. We'll find yeah, him. Yeah, we'll find him. him. Put, maybe put up the links. Um, uh, but <laughs> that's right. The, the, I asked my students, and I said, look, if Bill Gates came up to you and and uh, asked you uh, uh, for, for, for if you if you'd like expressed to you an interest in investing in you, would you be upset? Now, for a variety of reasons, you may reject it, but you certainly wouldn't be upset about it. You would you would think, well, Bill Gates must think I'm you know, I mean, I assume Bill Gates is a profit maximizing guy. He's not going to invest in you because he thinks you're he thinks you're going to you're going to go bust. He wants to invest in you because he thinks you have you have promise. Um, the, when, I, when I see the U.S. current account deficit rise, uh, or the more appropriately, I think, or at least as appropriately, the U.S. capital account surplus rise, um, I'm always encouraged. Okay, so it's more investment pouring here. That that ex, that 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 it also shows confidence, continued confidence of foreigners in the future of the American economy. If if I guarantee you, fortunately, this won't happen. But if if, if President Bush tomorrow, uh, with the Speaker of the House and Senate Majority Leader standing behind him, cheering him on, said, tomorrow, uh, or the next day, we're, we're going to nationalize all major industries in the United States, I guarantee you that would reduce America's trade deficit. The current account deficit would start to shrink immediately, right? Now, we would say, oh, great news, we stop, finally stop living beyond our means. Uh, well, it, w- it wouldn't be great news because people would, p- foreigners would pull out those, by the way, Americans would pull out the investments too. And we may we may go into a current account surplus overnight, but that would be disastrous for us because investors would know that nationalization would mean disaster for the economy, and the economy would would would, would soon go into a tailspin downward. One of the points I do want to make, uh, which is related to this, um, it's hard to get precise estimates, but um, Doug Irwin points out in his excellent book, uh, Free Trade Under Fire, uh, it's in second edition, uh, that about one third of America's imports uh, are not consumer goods. We, we think of it when, when Americans import, we think, well, we're importing, you know, iPods and automobiles and oil that we're just consuming. But one-third of America's imports are capital goods used in production here in America. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what... Machinery what, and other... Yeah, things. yeah. And so... To the extent that we import these things, well, th- this is not this is this isn't an example of 
of you know a drunken sailor on a spree yeah. on a spree this is stuff we're importing to, to to enhance our own productivity even further that's a whole other issue which, yeah. which we don't have time to go into which is that the measurement of what we call the trade deficit is kind of meaningless i mean you gave the sony example a minute ago as if it were a japanese product of course many of the components that's of right. the sony right. bio are made outside japan that's right it's a wonderful article by hal varian we'll put a link up to that that talked about how the ipod which contributes to our trade deficit because it's, quote, made in China, that most of the components of the iPod, of course, aren't made in China. They're made in other nations that are supplying China. All China does is assemble them. The trade deficit treats it as a Chinese product mechanically because that is the, the, the mm -hmm. convention. But the creativity of the iPod, which comes from America, is captured – in by mostly the iPod itself mostly enriches Americans who came up with the creativity and of right. its design, right. and yet the trade deficit attributes it to China, suggesting that China's getting you know something out of this. China's value added of the iPod is very small. Trade deficit and other similar statistics are incredibly blunt and can't handle this. Um, and we'll put a link up to that article as well. I know, Don, that you have at least another three or four hours to add comments about the trade deficit. And we're not going to go into those now. Maybe we'll save those for another time. But I encourage readers to look at the book or Don's writings at Cafe Hayek where he uh, uh, eloquently talks about these misconceptions. I want to close with a different, different example from the book that I love. And I want to encourage our listeners to talk to their family about this because I found – I used it with my kids and I found it to be a remarkable exercise. Early on in the book, you talk about one of the concerns of globalization – is inequality. And again, this is an enormous issue. We can't go into it now. But you give a wonderful example at the start of the book um, about time travel, uh, imagining if your great-great-grandmother or great-great-grandfather uh, was somehow transported into the present and came to the home of the world's wealthiest man, Bill Gates, who you just mentioned, and what would your great-great-grandmother find marvelous and extraordinary and unbelievable about Bill Gates' house and life? Yeah, well, it's a mental experiment. Of course, we, we, we can't prove it. But imagine taking you know, one of your ancestors from the mid or early 19th century, 200 years ago, pouring, and they're in Bill Gates' house. And it just, it just I, I imagine – I mean, obviously, they would be struck. They would be – Dumbstruck. Dumbstruck, <laughs> just in utter awe, an awe that we can't imagine. But what would it be? They, they, they would be struck by the fact that the Gateses bathe daily. Just every day. Every one of them bathes in, and, in hot water. They can, and they can adjust the temperature pretty, pretty finely. Um, they don't but, have to haul the water from a river? Or no, and they, and, they, and they use the bathroom inside. Incredible. Right? Uh, that uh, they, they have all their teeth. That, that these people can expect to live into their 80s. And keep all their teeth until their 80s. Um, that if they get tuberculosis, well, they probably won't get tuberculosis. But if they do, they're not that concerned. It probably won't kill them. Um, that they can turn on a switch and watch in real time pictures from other parts of the world that are happening right away. That each of them can get into a small aluminum tube and within hours be on another continent. Uh, that each of them can get in another piece of aluminum that has four wheels and drive at unheard of speeds uh, uh, to you know a, a place across town or across state. Uh, that uh, they can take a, a, a little pill 
called aspirin that will relieve a headache, uh, that they can pop uh, little round things into their eyes uh, that make, and make them look like they don't need any vision correction, yet uh, now Bill Gates doesn't, of course, he wears glasses. But, but, but he, I think the things that would most stun any ancestor from you know, a century or more ago who, who was put into Bill Gates' house uh, would be things that m almost every American today has access to and takes for granted. You don't even think about it. It's true. I'm not saying that Bill Gates' life is exactly like your and my life, but I think the difference. One way to put it, I think the difference between the material uh, content of Bill Gates's life and that of his family, and your life and my life and that of our families, that difference is tiny compared to the difference between the lives of ordinary people from uh, a century or more ago and your and my life today. I'm not worried about Sure, Bill Gates, he has his own private aluminum tube to fly across the continent. I have to share, you and I have to share an aluminum tube with hundreds of other people. I'd prefer to have my own private aluminum tube. But, <laughs> right. uh, uh, but uh, no one in America starves to death today. Uh, we, we all have access at least to basic health care, although it's politically incorrect to say that. Uh, uh, we... we can all talk in real time on telephones. We can all listen to musical recordings of the same quality that Bill Gates can listen to. We can all bathe daily. Uh, none of us, very few of us, have, have head lice. Uh, we all will all pretty much keep our teeth if we want to until we're in our 80s. Our life expectancy, is, even for the poorest Americans, is much higher than it was for the richest Americans 100 years ago. And the people around the world who have embraced the global world that Americans have mostly embraced are living more and more like Bill Gates. They are more and more likely to have access to the things that make life easier and help you live longer. Yeah. Uh, China and India, which are still very poor countries, are less poor because they have opened their borders. And it's true that they're still... And we're less poor because they've opened their borders. That's true, too. Yeah. And it is true that there are still desperately poor people um, in fact, next week we'll be talking to Paul Collier, the author of The Bottom Billion. In next week's podcast, there are desperately poor people. They are mostly the ones who are cut off from the global trading system, uh, tragically. So I think um, it's important to remember that the world at any point in time is has an enormous disparity of wealth and well-being. But uh, the trends, trends are good. Right, I agree. My guest today has been Don Boudreau, chair of the economics department at George Mason University. His book is Globalization. Don, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Always a pleasure, Russ. In last week's podcast with Mike Munger, I raised the example of how hard it is for a department store to compete with the various stores in the mall that carry similar merchandise. The shoe store, the freestanding shoe store that's in the mall, has to live and die selling shoes. They have to cover their costs, including rent or go out of business. The department store in the same mall has much less precise information on how its shoe department is doing. It has to impute a rent. It provides without charge the accounting, legal, and other services shared by all the sections within the store. So the department store has a much harder time knowing whether its shoe department's being run well, whereas the standalone shoe store in the mall has the profit incentive working rather powerfully. It's more likely to price things properly, it's more likely to 
use the right amount of stuff, the right amount of legal services, the right amount of sales time because it has that profit mode of working. Now, of course, some stores have profit centers within them, and they try to mimic the effects of the profitability that's driving the standalone store. But in general, the department store is going to be at a disadvantage. It's not as likely to be run as efficiently. So in the podcast, I promised I'd come back to this question, but I forgot to. Uh, So I thought I'd say a few words here, uh, though I noticed there were already a lot of good comments up at the – on econtalk.org related to uh, Mike's – for Mike's podcast. Now, the standard answer that I think most economists would give for how the department store manages to overcome its uh, lack of information about how to allocate uh, services and and labor within its within its uh, departments is that it has to offer something to make up for its handicaps. Uh, the, it has to ha- provide something of value either to customers or find a way to reduce costs to offset the inefficiencies that that it has from being run. Uh, in a more of a top-down manner. Now, the economies of scale are part of the advantage that a department store has, but those are offset somewhat by the mall uh, standalone shoe store and other competing uh, stores within the mall against the, sh- the department store because they're often part of chains. They're often uh, franchised or part of chains that have their own economies of scale. Uh, so I think that isn't the only possible answer. Rather, I think the most compelling answer is that the department store acts as a filter. And I think when we think about retailing in, in the 21st century and we think about economic activity in the 21st century, the power of filters is going to become increasingly important. The, the amount of choice that we have and our high opportunity cost of time is going to drive us to look for ways to economize on search costs and informational costs uh, because of all those choices. And, and we all use filters in our life in, in all kinds of ways um, to, to reduce those search and, and um, other types of costs. Uh, now, you might think that one of the advantages of the department store is that it economizes on search time. And I don't think that's correct, although it, it's partially correct. Um, you know, in one sense, the department store has an advantage because everything's under one roof, but the stores in the mall have the same advantage. They're all under one roof, too. You can really think of a mall as a disaggregated department store. It has all the departments of the department store, but they're in these standalone uh, silos, these standalone stores, and that's why they thrive because the stores that are poorly run are not going to cover their rent and they're going to be pushed out by competitors and newcomers that the mall uh, owner will find more attractive. So the economies of of search, the literal search costs for a customer in the department store are not so great. It's a little smaller than the rest of the mall, true, but it's also hard to wander around in there and and, uh, sometimes you get lost, you can't find stuff. And so in some ways, the actual outside the department store part of the mall, the standalone store part, has certain advantages that are the same really as the – I think they're very similar to the to the mall store. Now, I think the real advantage that the, um, that the department store offers is as a filter in quality. Uh, basically, I, when I shop at Macy's or at Nordstrom's or one of these stores that have lots of different stuff in them, 
basically what I'm doing is economizing on search costs for quality and the uncertainty about the quality of what I'm going to buy. When I go to these stores, I have a certain expectation because of the brand name of Macy's or Nordstrom's or whatever store there is in the mall. I have a certain comfort level with that because I know that they've put their name on the products they put in their store, and they search for me. They go out, and this is where the economies of scale, I think, do play a role. They go out and search and put those those quality uh, items in their store. And so when I shop at one of these places, I'm confident that the stuff that I find there is going to be of a particular quality, and I'm willing to pay a premium potentially uh, for that for that comfort. So I think that's the biggest advantage that the department store has. And, of course, to the extent that there are alternative ways to find information about quality, uh, the department store has less of an advantage. Uh, to the extent I can trust the brand name of the shoe store in the mall, or to the extent that I can find information about other types of uh, other types of information, say on the web, uh, for about people who've bought things and have put their reviews down there. There are all kinds of competing sources of information, and the brand name of the mall is probably less important and less valuable than it was. Oh, 20, 25 years ago, 50 years ago, when people uh, found it harder to acquire information about the quality of the product and the stamp of Sears or JCPenney or Macy's was more important in assuring customers that they were quality products. Um, just as an example of this phenomenon outside of, of department stores, you might think that it's a puzzle as to why any author uses a publisher and gives up royalties when you could self-publish and get all the royalties for yourself. Now, one answer is that there's marketing and there's editing you get from a publisher, but a lot of people publish books that don't get edited much and don't get much marketing, and they still go with the publisher. They don't publish it themselves. And the obvious answer is that the publisher is a filter reassuring author, uh, excuse me, reassuring readers that the authors that they publish are of a minimum standard, maybe very minimum, but of a minimum standard of quality, and that when you buy a book from that publisher, you know that it's going to be decent, uh, whereas with a self-published author, it could be horrible. So rather than wandering through the self-published section of uh, a website or going to one of these websites that, that just specializes in self-publishing, and I'm sure there's some fine books there, but you've got to weed through a lot of not-so-fine books because there's no filter. So basically, uh, you've got to bear those costs yourself. It's cheaper for an editor to bear those costs for everyone. Now, of course, this system is imperfect. There are a lot of wonderful books that get rejected numerous times, and because the filter isn't, isn't perfect, but I think that's the main reason that people publish with publishers, the reason publishing houses exist, the reason editors exist. Uh, because authors know that even though they're giving up royalties, they're getting potential readers who would not bother finding them or couldn't find them if the author self-published. Um, hope you're uh, enjoying Econ Talk. We'll see you next week. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.